You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. When I interviewed Lumbee author Lena Epps Brooker, she mentioned other Lumbee she thought important to interview. One of those was Dana Linnell Lowry. Dana has a multifaceted life that has been the result of several journeys. Her heritage is Lumbee. Her beloved career is as a public school librarian. Her passion as a poet and author is writing, and her devotion is to being an American Indian activist. Dana is here to share with us her poetry, writing, and an understanding of her experience. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for being with me. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, let's begin, uh, since uh, you are a poet. Uh, let's begin with one of your poems. Uh, which one are you going to read for us first? Okay, I think I will start. Um, this one is titled Apples and Indians from my book, Poems and Hollers from a Candy Apple Indian. So this is sort of the self-title poem of the book. Apples and Indians. I never really liked apples. They always hurt my teeth, except for the ones with candy on them. Those were different. I first heard the slang term when I was in elementary school visiting my cousin. There was a lot of paperwork for me to attend, and I was excited to go. I recall two things. The walls and floors were brown, like a silly putty brown, and the boys called me an apple Indian. They explained I talked funny, like a white girl, so I was like an apple, red on the outside, but white on the inside. I never felt white. In fact, I dreamed of having hair like a white girl, the kind that is feathered and held together by Aquanet hairspray. I never felt white, and in fact, I feared that if someone passed by me and touched my hair, they would know that I was different. Not black, but not white. The boys picked on me and picked on me all day long, and before the school day ended, I found a pen and wrote on the bottom of my canvas shoes, Screw you. It was my first act of defiance and the first cuss word I ever threw. On the bus ride home, I casually put my foot across my leg so all those boys could see the words. I never really liked apples, except for the ones with the candy on them. I am a candy apple Indian. That's a great poem. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, and this is um, unusual uh, in the sense that it reflects uh, the challenge, not from the white community, but from your own community. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about that a little bit, uh, because you, you, you said you didn't grow up uh, in the community. That's right. Um, both my mom and dad are from Pembroke. It's Robinson County in North Carolina, about two hours away from Charlotte. Um, but my older sister and younger brother and I grew up in Charlotte. Um, so, you know, in our school, there might have been five to seven other American Indians, mostly Lumbees. Um, and those were people that I grew up with. I participated in Charlotte Indian education programs with. So they were kind of like cousins if they weren't already truly cousins, because I did go to school with cousins as well. Um, and I loved going to Pembroke. I loved returning back to my cousins. I've always been close to my cousins. I've made some great friends that are still my friends. Um, but when I would go, I was definitely treated, I'd say harsher. Now, now when I look back on uh, my poem, I realize as an adult, the boys were picking on me because they, they probably liked me. <laughs> that's how, that's how boys showed, you know, affection. Um, but at the time it, it just, it was really in my head because I just wasn't sure, um, which way I was supposed to move to be, um, you know, welcomed in. Um, so I've, I've kind of navigated on my own, not, not to feel sorry for me, but I just, I'm fine navigating, um, within and with out of my tribe. Okay. Okay. 
Well, you've had you've had a, a an interesting journey uh, that kind of involves four different dimensions, I guess, um, because you speak of your own spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you speak of uh, your journey to becoming a librarian and educator, uh, which you still are uh, and are doing. Just started the new school year. Right. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, and then becoming a poet and writer, uh, and then uh, becoming an activist uh, within your culture. Uh, so kind of talk about your journey, but touch on each of those yeah. Uh, dimensions. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a Christian family, very strong faith. Um, the Bible, um, pictures of Jesus, the nativity, going to church, choir, the music in the church, it's all been a part of my landscape. Um, I feel like as a mother in the 21st century, I absolutely pray every day. I have faith and hope for my children to have, you know, peaceful, positive lives. Um, when I pray, I use words like Jesus and God. And I, you know, at one time when my boys were little, my constant prayer was for them to be happy. And I thought to myself, if they were always happy, it would be weird. Um, so I changed up my prayer to God and said, you know, let them be safe, let them be healthy, and let them be peaceful um, because they're going to go through happy and sad times, and you want that to happen to them um, just to evolve. Um, as I grow up, I know that um, I look at God in a very different way, but we've always had this really good relationship. Um, when I think of praying, um, I think of my grandma Stella, who kind of sat in the middle of the back row of the church and would be very quiet. And I always viewed that as her personal conversation with God. Um, it just seemed like no matter what was going on, what was being said, um, she was in that moment and nothing could really stop her. And, and for me, it almost was Buddha-like of her to be very still and, and block out the noise um, to be able to communicate uh, with God. Um, so as I've gotten older, I have weaved things like meditation. Um, and during those moments, I do speak of, of God and um, but I, I love yoga. I love meditation. I feel like we could learn things from and take things from different religions um, as well as our own. I, I, I also I call myself sometimes a decaffeinated Christian because I do have this fairy tale idea that everybody has their own heaven to go to. Um, and I, I hope that even if a heaven is just a place of no more pain, just a serenity um, to not have cancer, to not, you know, be abused. Um, just those things. I hope everyone has sort of this paradise that they go to um, when they pass on. So that's certainly kind of my my spiritual journey. Uh, my journey as a librarian, it, it kind of is um, an unusual one. I was a stay-at-home mom. I had been working in the corporate world for, as an event planner uh, for the Southern Christmas Show and the Southern Women's Show. And the Southern Women's Show, it took me out of um, state to Nashville, Richmond, Orlando. Um, and I just was missing out on a lot of my son's life. They were very small. And at the time, um, their father stayed at home with them to raise them so that he could start um, his own business. So when I kind of got to a point of, I I don't like to be on this schedule anymore. um, I started to actually, who inspired me was my pastor's um, wife. She was a librarian at a middle school and she was looking for a library assistant. And so um, around that time, my tribe had put out this flyer that said, if you want to return to school, we'll pay for the first semester. And um, I called him up and said, will this go towards a master's? Because I'm actually looking at a master's in library science. And the gentleman I was speaking to was looking through all the paperwork. He says, I don't think so. I think you can do it. 
Um, so my, my ex-husband at the time, he was starting his own business. I was working as a teacher assistant, teacher librarian, making no money at all. So I took the tribe up on the offer and went to school for that semester, and I fell in love with it. I went to ECU online. I'd wait until my sons went to bed, and I would uh, work on my master's. And um, I finished that and started to work for the middle school that I was at. Then I moved to the high school, and then um, I've been at high school ever since. But my sons, I mean, whenever they had spring break, I had spring break. Whenever it was winter break, so we were kind of on the same schedule. We had summers together, so it was a wonderful, it is a wonderful job for me. My only regret about being a librarian is that I didn't do it sooner. I I adore the job. I think it has creativity. Um, I use sort of my event planning uh, when I'm working in my library to put out book displays and have programs in the library. So, And then the greatest, probably greatest time uh, of my librarianship, I guess you'd call it, is when I had both of my sons at my school. So they went to the high school that I was working at. And that was just just a wonderful time to just have them in the space. They didn't have to come to the library, but just having them in the space was just so wonderful for me. What about your journey uh, into becoming an author and a yes. poet? Um, I mean, I have always been a word nerd. I have always loved lyrics to music, uh, sometimes more than music itself. I love books. I love handwriting. I've always been drawn to poetry like Shel Silverstein, um, all the way to Sylvia Plath. I just have always been um, drawn to words and learning new words and letting them tickle into my mouth. So I, I say that I have written poetry all my life. You could probably say more or less, I always had pen and paper around and was jotting thoughts, ideas, journaling. Um, and, and it really led to uh, the Candy Apple book because I had unearthed some of my poetry from when I was about 14 years old, maybe younger. And I put a lot of them in that book. So I feel like there are books inside of me that probably comes from reading a lot and saying, wow, I could write a story about this or I could write a story about that. And now that I have started it, I almost have so many unfinished books, but they all predominantly center around being uh, Lumbee. Uh, we have such a unique story to tell. So when I decided to do this self-publishing, um, one of my main goals was encouraging other Lumbees to write our story because it is so unique. Um, so it's been very easy for me to write. I just I just got to get fire under my feet and complete some of them. <laughs> well, what about the um, journey into your activism? Yes, I think, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was in the Charlotte Indian Education Program as a student at Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, uh, we were led by Rosa Winfrey. She was a wonderful woman who just did amazing things with us. Every summer we would go to summer camps. Uh, we would either work with reservation Indians. We would work at college campuses. We were governor's pages um, various years. We went to Washington, Raleigh. Um, and every time we would go, she would say, um, you are an ambassador of the Lumbee people. So I need you to go out there and I need you to speak on behalf of the tribe. So, I mean, at very young ages, we were we were doing public speaking um, we were coming up and, you know, extending our hand, doing these things that just gave us a great opportunity just to present ourselves. And I would have never, it's like now kids call themselves activists. I think that back then I would have loved for somebody to say, you're not an ambassador, you're an activist, because that sounds so rugged and rebel. Um, <laughs> but we have just always been pushed to share our tribe's story with other people. And I, I have done that throughout my life. I did it while my children were in school. Um, I go around to various schools, workshops, classes, events, colleges, Daughters of the Revolution, museums, and just tell my story based on what the age group is. 
So for North Carolina schools, it is the fourth grade and eighth grade curriculum when they learn about North Carolina tribes. Um, and then beyond that, like last week, I was teaching an English class at my school who's reading a novel where the main character is, um, he's an American Indian from the Spokane Reservation, and he has the opportunity to go to the all-white school. And in the book, um, it's a great book, it's called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. In the book, uh, the character, he struggles with where he's supposed to be in the world, and they call him Apple Indian in the book, which the first time I read that a long time ago, I was like, oh, this is something in other places. I really I really thought that this Apple Indian was made for me. <laughs> but um, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of a, a something you pick on and, and use. Um, in lots of different tribes, but um, so I'm I'm talking a lot about my tribe and just love to get the opportunity. Love now that I'm in Boone and get the opportunity to share it because um, since we're near the coast, not a lot of people well they don't realize there's eight tribes and they don't realize how large the Lumbies are and where we're located. So I'm I'm really putting us on the map up here in uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. <laughs> well, and that's 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 an important thing to do, and that's 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 a good thing to do. Thank yeah. you uh, for doing that. Well, when I was uh, prepping for this, uh, I noticed that um, there were there was a a, a couple of quotes. Uh, one is in uh, your book, Strong Like Rhoda, the epigraph, uh, and then uh, there's a quote that you have under your name uh, in your emails. Yeah. Uh, that you have. And then there's the subtitle uh, of your book, Strong Like Rhoda. Uh, so let's, let's, let's talk about those a little bit. Um, uh, the, the Strong Like Rhoda subtitle is Exploring Female Power in the Lumbee Tribe. Um, why did you choose that subtitle? I mean, if, if and when you get the opportunity to meet uh, a, a good many Lumbee women together, you realize, boy, they are the backbone. Like we wouldn't be sitting down with a plate in front of us and <laughs> nothing could go forward without this force of women. And it's so funny because when I get together um, with with my cousins, it, it is it reminds me almost of like my Southern Christmas show days where Everybody's setting up. Nobody's saying, what do I need to do? It, it, we all fall in line and just create the spread of food, create the atmosphere for a, a family reunion or a get together or a wedding and, you know, all of these things. Um, so we just we have so much strength. And, but sometimes I feel like a lot of Lumbee women doubt their entire strength. Um, I, I just think that again, just being part of the 21st century where you're worried about your children and you're worried about how much gas is costing. There's so many things swirling around us that it can take away from your natural strength. And and I feel like Rhoda and her maiden name was Strong. Rhoda Strong Lowry is a perfect person to connect with our strength. And we play on that strong in t-shirts and all over where we always say strong like Rhoda. We've got to be strong like Rhoda. Um, we know so much of Henry, her husband's history, because he was a rebel and, um, you know, he had many bounties on his head and he was sort of our first um, activist. But she's sort of shadowed in a way, but she's got this courage and strength. She was quiet. She had a quiet confidence, a quiet strength about her. And her strength can be seen in her knowledge, um, in her contributions to her husband the tribe, her children, um, as well as being behind the resistance that her husband fought for. Well, in the epigraph uh, of the book, um, uh, it says, um, and this is by uh, Adolf Dial. Am I saying that right? Adolf, yep. Mm-hmm. Adolf Dial? Yep. Okay. Um, refuse to accept others' narrow definitions of Indianness. They know that the way a person looks or behaves does not make him or her a Lumbee. Instead, 
they know that their Indianness lives in what they share, their love of Robeson County home, a special history and heritage, and perhaps the most important, a certain way of viewing the world born from their unique past. Yes, I love that. Um, Adolf Dahl was a scholar and, I mean, certainly an author, but certainly a leader um, in our tribe. Um, so I, I always loved loved that because, I mean, just like all humans, we have different looks, we have different dialects. And, and I tell students when I talk about being Lumbee, um, I hope that you find similarities with your culture and my culture and that we respect our differences. Um, so... You know, growing up in Mecklenburg in the 80s, I was constantly asked, what are you? Are you Brazilian? Are you Greek? I just, people couldn't place my facial features because, you know, it was taught there's two races. There's black and there's white. Um, so if you ever have an opportunity to go to a Lumbee cultural event, you see Lumbees have different skin tones, hair textures, facial features. Um, we recognize them. And there's some that stand out like the the gray eyes or green eyes. Um, there's things that stand out like dialect and mannerisms. Um, but I've had plenty of people say, oh, well, you don't, you don't look Indian. But I think their interpretation of Indian is the, the, the maiden on the pack of butter. Um, it's Pocahontas's Disney's interpretation. Mm. You know, it's, it's these small advertisements throughout their life where maybe she was dressed in a loincloth <laughs> mm -hmm. or, you know, the Washington team where, you know, it's, it's just a strange, it's a strange thing because um, who I'm supposed to look like, I, I look lumpy. I definitely look lumpy. Um, and I'm proud of that. Okay. Well, and then there's the, the quote that you place under uh, your name in your emails um, where you say, uh, and I guess this is a quote from Sarah Winnemucca, mm -hmm. Winnemucca Hopkins, yep. uh, American Indian activist. Yep. Um, it says, much money and many precious lives would have been saved if you had fought my people with books instead of power. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> I like quotes. I know everybody likes quotes. Um, but I have had um, Sarah's up for a very long time, probably as long as I've kind of had email. Um, and I found out about her just through my own research of American Indian women. Um, she fascinated me because um, as a minority woman for her time period, um, she was an influential uh, Paiute family. And for whatever reason, her family, who was from Humboldt Lake, Nevada, um, and I was just out in California near the Humboldt area. Um, so I almost wish and hope that Sarah and I walked the same paths. But her family was, they almost were reached out as interpreters for white settlers. And so she too had to walk in two paths and she really has some pretty big speeches that she made um, even in like Washington DC areas. Um, and so for her time period as a woman, as a minority, she just, you know, became this powerhouse of an Indian activist to me. And, um, and then what she says about much money and precious lives would have been saved if you fought my people with books instead of power. Um, I mean, that's my, that is absolutely my fight right now. Just, just trying to get people to understand that information is power. Um, learning on an ongoing basis, um, evolving yourself on an ongoing basis to, to just learn about the world and yourself. It's just a timeless quote that I feel like has to be, on every email that I send. <laughs> well, you um, have, have spoken uh, about the importance of Rhoda uh, and, and also uh, about uh, ancestral stories. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, 
uh, why those stories are important and what that did to lead you to writing the book. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's, I mean, there's so, so many women that I have kind of stood on the back of. Um, so I, a lot of this is a tip of the hat to them and, and how they kind of encouraged me to um, be myself and, and have this voice to speak. Um, I tell a lot of my students, um, you know, there's ancestral kits out there that are a lot of fun and they're novelties, but people have to understand that whoever's DNA they have with those kits, especially when they first came out, that's who it's going to say your DNA has. So if we have French, German, and um, Dominican Republic DNA in the pool, if we give our DNA, it's going to show up that way. I mean, we're very much alike as far as DNA goes. I've heard that penguins are are more different with their DNA than humans. And yet, mm. to us, they look exactly alike. And to us, we divide ourselves by race and culture, by religion, um, so much. So I tell people the best way to learn about your culture is to live, you know, talk to your living relatives. They know the stories of your family. Um, maybe because my undergraduate studies were in sociology, I've always been fascinated by people's cultures and their backgrounds, their traditions. But one of my most important slides, no matter if I'm talking to fourth grade class, a museum setting, a college group, I say to everyone, you have a culture. Everybody has a culture. That culture might be how grandma makes macaroni and cheese on holidays. It might be how you dress for certain religious ceremonies. Um, everyone has traditions that they do. Um, and gosh, if you haven't, if you don't have any, start some. Um, but our best bet is to you know, connect with the people that are in the, the past and the present and have those oral communications. Well, and how did that then lead to your interest or desire to write the book? One of, one of uh, parts of my book, um, it goes into, it actually goes into the women that I think are important in my tribe. Um, and if I could read just a, a teensy bit, just the beginning of that chapter, um, it's chapter 13, and this is from the Strong Like Rhoda book. Um, the chapter's titled, Life is a Powwow, Make a Grand Entry. There's always a grand entry at the very beginning where everybody comes in, all categories, all dancers, all people that are participating in it. Um, so the first paragraph just reads, to uphold the integrity of this book, celebrating Lumbee women, I believe we need to give our young Lumbee women the right tools to succeed so they can create incredible futures, not only for themselves, but for those around them. Some of these tools are women leaders, activists, artists, and athletes who have conquered great things. Hopefully you will know one and be inspired by those who have paved the way before us. And then I mention in the book, women that we should follow. And they are the ones who really inspired me. I mean, throughout the book, it's it was certainly centered around Rhoda, but it talks about the women in my tribe who um, encouraged me um, to be proud to be Lumbee and to share our story. We have another reading uh, from the book that you will yeah. uh, read for us. Okay. Okay, this one is Chapter 8, Fragile Like a Bomb. If I am not in Pembroke, North Carolina, I'm often asked by strangers, what are you? Lebanese, Hispanic, Brazilian? Never have I been asked, I, are you a Native American, unless the person is familiar with the Lumbee tribe? When some people meet me for the first time, it may also be the first time they have met a Native American. So unfairly, I become the only representative for my tribe, and my actions and ideas become a testament to an entire race. Otherwise, we're imagined by stereotypical Native Americans portrayed in movies and dated history books. I also have many people who ask if I am originally from the United Kingdom because of my dialect. 
Many people tell me that I sound like my mother when I speak, which makes me proud. To understand the Lumbee language, we can look to one professor's research, Walt Wolfram, a William C. Friday Distinguished University professor who teaches at NC State English. He directs the North Carolina Language and Life Project and has studied the Robeson County area's dialect. dialect. And then I go in and talk about our dialect. Um, and like our various dialects, there are also various looks of Lumbees. My mother's hair was always fine and wispy, while my father's was thick locks that he would pull straight every day into a wavy head of black sea. My mother would always put importance on our hair, like my grandmother and her mother. Hair texture is always something that is discussed, as with many other ethnic groups. One famous saying is, does he have good hair? Meaning, if you're going to be involved with someone romantically, be mindful that you will also pass down all of his genes and traits, including coarse or kinky hair. I love the variations of my people. There is a problematic concept, however, that darker skin is inherently less desirable if someone is too light, they refer to them as bright, meaning not Indian enough. This colorism stigmatization of dark-skinned women placing less blood quantum of our light-skinned women can be harmful to everyone, especially ourselves. It is exhausting to constantly worry about things like our skin color when there's so many other things we need to focus on and work towards. We cannot be defined by what others interpret as our physical features. In 1935, the Lumbee tribe received a memo from the U.S. Department of Interior stating that those who were one half or more Indian blood could organize under the Wheeler-Howard Indian Reorganization Act to receive employment, education, or reservation benefits. In this act, they could be part of an experiment that would benefit our tribe with full federal recognition. To determine who was eligible. Harvard anthropologist Carl Seltzer was sent to Robeson County to test 209 Lumbees who were applying for this recognition. Scientist Seltzer, who performed the report, M. Main recorded the report, and two Caucasian men who explain, explained that they would take individuals and physically measure their entire body features to see if they resemble the American Indian look. I have one primary document showing details of this report. To protect the family, I'll identify this Lumbee female as Mrs. Locklear, who was 43 years old. She was the 78th person to participate in this scientific report. She had three brothers, three sisters, eight sons, one daughter. Her occupation was farming, and in the report, they looked at variations of her following body parts, her hair, her hair color, her body hair, her nasal bridge, eyebrows, eye folds externally, forehead shape, skin shape, the skin color of her breast, her nasal tip, and her nostril bridge. Please reread this carefully. Two strange men took this working mother of nine children into a room and she had to not ex expose not only her body hair, but her nipples and other parts of her to prove she was Native American. Later, we learned that all the recordings were then compared to one Navajo man. The Navajo Nation is a beautiful tribe, but there is no physical feature that compares the Navajo to the Lumbee. None. According to this measurement, only 22 qualified. Although Seltzer's methods fit the theories of our race at that time, they later became viewed as invalid. We are still fighting for full federal recognition, and our fight will continue. There has always been speculation that the Lumbees are not a recognized tribe, but here are the facts. In 1885, the Lumbee were recognized as a tribe by the state of North Carolina. In 1888, the Lumbee began to petition for full federal government recognition. Because the Lumbee lived at peace with its non-Indian neighbors, they didn't possess anything valuable like land, mineral, gold. The United States had very little reason to treaty with the Lumbee. In 1956, the United States Congress enacted a law that partially federally recognized the Lumbee tribe. 
withholding all privileges and benefits that federally recognized tribes have. The Lumbees predominantly lived in the most unfortunate part of the state. Robinson County is a very, very poor community and we're waiting for benefits and full recognition. It would help our community with issues like poverty, drug abuse, teenage pregnancy, suicide, as well as the digital divide, which hinders access and progress. In 1956, the Lumbee Act was passed. Almost half of North Carolina's American Indians are Lumbee. The Lumbee Act was passed to recognize the Lumbee group, but it doesn't provide any financial assistance. Our university was our saving grace. There's so many Lumbees with advanced degrees, and they were all continued to continue their education and pass it along to their children because the importance of education is for progress and change. That brings up so many issues <laughs> that are worth talking about. Um, one of the things that um, you, you talked about in the, in the poem uh, that you read and, and uh, you know, that the, the boys accused you of being white, uh, but that you dreamed of having white hair and that you were afraid uh, that if somebody touched your hair, that they would realize that you're not. Um, there's a, there's the, the dilemma uh, that on, on the one hand uh, that you share with African-Americans um, that you're considered people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that your 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 heritage has experienced uh, the terrible legacy of racism uh, on that part, and a part of that has been, as you as you mentioned, uh, the notion of skin uh, of blood ratio. Yes, uh, um, that that um, unlike African Americans, because they were so um, yanked away from their culture, and 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 it was just completely uh destroyed uh, they they you know don't have any uh recognition or trace of their ancestral tribal cultures and things but but uh, american indians do uh and with the reservations uh the blood ratio plays into how you get to be identified uh to be a part of the reservation sure talk about that a little bit sure uh and um you know, when you when you open a lot of textbooks, what you read about are the federally recognized tribes. You won't see Lumbian textbooks or other state tribes. It's predominantly those with federal recognition. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that look at our tribal card, our enrollment records. It can be seen as gatekeeping, uh, white gatekeeping, because the definition of who is Indian um, is reshaping based on how the government wants it to fit. Um, so you'll have some Native Americans that do not have their tribal card because it does not be benefit them. Um, part of getting the tribal card for the Lumbee, you have to go in and it's basically like an interview. They ask you about the community. They ask you about your involvement. Um, they ask about history, and I'm okay with that because I do think that um, where we originated, Robinson County, Pembroke, is sort of like our motherland, um, you know, and we need to go back and contribute to it, whether it's it's going for our Lumbee homecoming, participating in powwows, going to family reunions. We some we should all be giving back to the community. Um, but, you know, talking about the Indian blood, I mean, it is hard to get your tribal card. You have to go in with everything. Um, and also, Lumbees, you know, for a long time were considered free people of color. Uh, that That sort of excluded us from, you know, protecting ourselves with arms having the right to vote, um, you know, when you're considered just not white, you're put in, you share, you know, people of colors, you know, lifestyle and, and box, you know, my, my parents, they went to an all Indian school. They drank from 
a third waterfowl. It was a it was a triracial landscape, and and a lot of these biracial laws they didn't they didn't acknowledge a triracial community, and it's still very much a triracial county um, in Lumberton, Pembroke, Red Springs, those areas. Um, but you know, I, I've always had people say to me, "Well, how much Indian are you?" Um, when my boys filled out applications to get into college, if we clicked on the box that said American Indian, it, some of them, not all of them, but some of them then said, please enter your tribal card number. Well, nobody else has to have a card and provide a number. It didn't get us money. It didn't, I mean, it didn't get us into the school. It just, it was for statistical purposes. Um and both of my boys have their tribal cards um, because, again, I've, I've placed an importance on it and that they, you know, give back to their tribe. Um, but I, I, I remind people in my presentations, you know, you would never go up and say, how much white do you have in you? And it's also interesting, like if if someone has a small percentage of African-American blood, they're considered black at that point. Um, so, you know, if, I mean, even, even in my tribe, you'll have people that, of course, you can, we can look at them and see there's, um, you know, they've, they've married into another culture, whether it be white, black, you know, Latino, you can see it in them and they are not less lumpy. They deserve a tribal card. They deserve to participate in, um, our programs. Because they are absolutely lumpy. Well, you have a poem uh, that kind of addresses that. I do. Okay. This one is called Triracial Rage. She drank from a third water fountain, not white, not black, and she was appreciative to have it. That is what she tells me. But she holds a heavy burden of being questioned about who and what she is. It doesn't make her back bend. It's her knees that carry the weight and probably her heart. But she holds her cards tight. No weakness, only good memories of when she was treated well. The good old days were good for her, but only in her space. The allowed spaces she could be in. In her conversations about her youth, it is always said with a cherished lilt. But she had always had to be careful of what spaces she put herself in. Now, this poem is, is about your mother, is that right? That's right. I I kind of learned about the third water fountain. Gosh, I feel like I was a young adult. I might have been younger than that, but I was mortified. I was I was outraged and just just really perplexed. Um because I just did not know that about my mom and my dad and my aunts and uncles. And you know, then the story started to come to me and and maybe it just never came up in conversation. Maybe I just wasn't um, mature enough to be um, involved in those conversations. Um, but my, my mom and dad have two very different views. Um, my mom is looks through it through rose-colored glasses. She was part of her leadership team at school. She played on the basketball team. She was a cheerleader. Um, at her college, she was the queen. So in her spaces, she was a leader and, and um, people looked to her and um, she was encouraged and, and, you know, pushed. My father um, speaks about how the boys would go to school until about 12 o'clock and then they were put, a lot of them who um, didn't have family who owned farms, a lot of them were put on trucks to go work for landowners farms um so no matter if they loved school if they hated school at 12 o'clock they were put on a truck and gone to work for um other people's property and they were paid in stamps not money and those stamps were primarily redeemable at white merchant stores um so my dad looks at it as we were given very little education it purposefully, we were given little education. Um, we were asked to work not for wages, but for trade. Um, so, you know, he looked at it very differently. And 
I have his shoe shine box where he shined professor and other people's shoes for money at a very, very young age. Then he got into washing cars. And so he was always a little businessman because, um, again, he was he was fighting the system that separated him. The um, terribleness of segregation um, can't. Uh, doesn't need to be dismissed, but there's that paradox um, related to it that, uh, as you spoke of with your mother, uh, African-Americans have also spoken about it, uh, that within their culture, uh, because it was insulated uh, because of the racism, uh, that, that, the professional class could thrive, uh, business owners could thrive, mm-hmm. uh, or as, as your mother experienced, uh, she had experiences of, of recognition that she would not have gotten, uh, had she been in an integrated school. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, it's odd and, and, and terrible that, uh, such things are created uh, because of that. Um, sure, but I, I, I do always mention to, especially my younger students, um, they're not they're not supposed to carry any burden of their ancestors. I think that all of us are here um, because our ancestors survived, and we're all here to hopefully make positive contributions. Um, And just to be aware that there's eight tribes, just to be aware that the Lumbee are partially federally recognized. That's all I ask of people. I don't, I get very uncomfortable if someone says, we're sorry what we did. Like I, that is, that is so, um, that's not on my mind. Um, You know, unfairness is in, it, it, takes many forms. And um, I guess um, just to be aware is something that I've just, you know, recently heard and, and loved the idea of um, we're not supposed to feel ba- bad about it. We're supposed to just be aware of it. Well, you, you say um, in uh, Strong Lock Rota um, that the wounds that you experience and that your people have experienced uh, may not have been your fault, uh, but your healing from those wounds is your responsibility. Um, talk about that. Talk about what ways that for you that happens and that you see your culture. Sure. sure. Um, one teacher assignment that um, has kind of been passed around through the years is uh, you get a group of people to stand in a line, a starting, a starting line. And you say, you give everybody a little, a card, not necessarily, this isn't who they necessarily are. It's just what they read on the card. So if on your card, you have both parents in your household, take a step, one step up. And then the next one is if both of your parents had the opportunity to have a education, take another step up. Um, If your grandparents were able to um, have an education step up. So so what you do is in this process, little by little, certain people get to step up and get farther on the starting line. And then you tell everybody, okay, now go. And to me, it's amazing when you have someone coming to our country, not knowing the language, and not only do they come in as a child, but they become the interpreter for their parents. They become the interpreter for themselves while learning another language. They come out of high school, college, own a business, um, create, um, you know, something that they go to medical school. It's like ha- they, their starting point was so much farther back. <laughs> and, and, they still made these hard situations um, something that they could excel at. It's just, it's amazing to me um, how 
we just, we don't need to feel guilty about our past. We just need to make a conscious effort to not repeat cruel behavior um, and to help others in hard situations, no matter what their color is. There's so many, there's so many and uh, Lumby success stories and they have such humble beginnings. Like our, our chancellor at the university um, is a heart surgeon and was a heart sur a retired heart surgeon in Pinehurst. And, you know, he said he grew up on the same dirt road as my mama. Um, my dad, he served on the Federal Reserve Board. He was the first American Indian to do that. Um, you know, that's that's a huge accomplishment, not for our tribe, but for American Indians in general. Um, so we all have we all have stories to tell and we all are here because of a place that we came from. And I just want people to know their culture, their ancestral background, um, the good, bad and ugly and, and move forward with it. Well, you have a poem called Growing Up that you're going to share with us. Okay. Okay, Growing Up. In the eyes of an innocent child, I was loved, adored, and accounted for. In the sweet baby's breath of life, I tasted no fear and had no worries. I could not comprehend the dance of death nor the grasp of greed. I would not accept the suffering of suicide. I was not expected to be anyone's expectation and knew no failure. I did not have to be an intelligent, inventive, intuitive, or intriguing. In the freedom of youth, I had wings to soar and no goals to reach. In the enlightenment of immaturity, I grew up unaware of my society. In the eyes of a grown woman, I know hate and accept jealousy. In the hushed whisper of age, I taste bitter terror and sour despair. I comprehend the waltz of wounds and the slap of selfishness. I would accept the demoralizing of democracy and the ill of impiety. I was expected to meet the challenge of barriers and to accept death, defeat. I had been educated, elegant, eccentric, efficient, environmental. And in the imprisonment of age, I drag shackles to every goal I reach. In the mystification of maturity, I live very much aware of this society, aware of my journeys, and unaware of my destruction. A little dark, right? <laughs> well, to me, that speaks of what, what we were just talking about, of, of the importance of your own responsibility. Yeah. Of the wound. And, and honestly, I feel like um, our biggest... The biggest person in our way is always ourselves. Well, you have one final poem okay. uh, that you're going to share. Okay, so this one, a little bit lighter, <laughs> is titled Looking. Looking behind, I see a time when they were little boys, full of energy and too slippery to hold. Looking forward, I see strong men with ease of conversation and kindness from within. Looking upward, I connect with the relatives and friends I have lost along the way. Looking below, I reconnect with the earth that gives us all an opportunity to say we are blessed. Looking within, I want to see the good and hope I am worthy of all I see around me. Well, I know you want to talk about your sons a little bit, but before we do that, um, I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't read a lot, uh, but what I have read... Uh, about uh, American Indian spirituality. Uh, when I read the poem, uh, it it seemed to draw on that with the with your uh, speaking of the different directions. Uh, is am I am I reading that accurately? That's right. Uh, yes, um, and and one of um, I call it the Lumby logo. It has the medicine wheel um, with the four different directions and the four colors. And um, yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of kind of symbols um, in our tribe and 
again, um, without a doubt, a connection to spirituality and to God and to faith and hope um, to just carry on and, and be grateful for what we've been given. Well, in your book, um, you, you talk about the difference between the way Western culture described Rhoda uh, with things like courage and strength and, and um, but as opposed to uh, how she described herself. Yes. Uh, which is related to family and culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess we can conclude with that by letting you do the same. Uh, we're talking about your sons. Yes. Oh, they are. They are the two things I absolutely did right in life. <laughs> um, my oldest son, Dolan, is um, he is finishing up school here soon at Appalachian State University. Um, he transferred from NC State to Appalachian to be in their music program. NC State had a great one. Um, Appalachian has an outstanding one. It's called the Hayes uh, Music uh, Program, and um, he is a bass player, fantastic, has a wonderful voice, and just a natural talent. Um, his dad is in the music industry, so of course he gets it naturally, and just both boys were raised with um, a great mix of music. Um, and media and books in their lives. So um, that's stolen. And uh, he, he is absolutely involved uh, with the tribe. Then my youngest, Evan, he is in Winston-Salem at the University um, of North Carolina School of the Arts um, for filmmaking. He, is he aspires to be a producer. Um, and uh, he's just doing fantastic. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to to visit that school, but it is an outstanding program. And it's a very small school, smaller than his high school. Um, but before he went, he uh, participated in their kind of uh, summer programs for filmmaking as a 10th and 11th grader. Um, and he's also uh, been a winner at Lum the Lumbee Film Festival for several years. Um, so I am really proud that both of my sons can do things like read music and um, have such a creative, artsy side to them. Um, yeah, their father and I, we just couldn't be more proud of them and their accomplishments. And um, like I said, they're very involved in the tribe. They, they, they always joke with me. We don't know how we're related, but we're related to everybody in Pembroke and <laughs> so everybody around them explains how they're related and you can tell that they kind of tune out because all they know is they're just related to all these people, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's wonderful. Um, we have a very colorful life and we're, we're just very thankful for it. Well, Dana, thank you for all that you've shared. Yeah. Uh, it's important. Uh, and I'm grateful. Uh, for the insights that you give. Uh, you're a wonderful poet and author. Uh, from what I've read in Rhoda, you're also a wonderful educator. Well, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> uh, so thank you for being with me, uh, and thank you for sharing what you've done. Yes, thanks for having me, and I just appreciate the opportunity, and I hope our paths cross one day. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth. Thank you.